How are we doing, Revolution? Woo! We can do better than that, can't we? How are we doing, Revolution? Woo! <laughs> Lame and lamer. All right. <laughs> Let's try again. All right. Um, how are we doing, Revolution? Woo! See? That's how you do it. Awesome. Uh, if you've never been here before, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at uh, Revolution. And um, tonight we're going to begin a what may be more than a year-long study of the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. That's what we like to do here is kind of dig in to the Bible so that if you've never been to church before, we want to introduce you to Jesus and, and, and introduce you to Scripture and, and how to read Scripture. We hope to teach you that as we go along. If you do have a church home that you go to on Sunday morning, uh, a place that doesn't look like a scene from a horror movie, um, that's awesome. Um, and But if you want to, you know, generally speaking, most churches don't go verse by verse through Scripture anymore. I'm not condemning that, but if you just want to do that, then we would welcome you to do that with us here on Sunday night. And speaking of the Bible, we have Bibles that should be under your chair, blue Bibles. Uh, these are New Living Translations, translations that we believe are easy to read and yet faithful uh, to the original Greek and Hebrew. And so if you do not own a Bible or if the Bible you own simply is difficult to read, you find difficult to read, then please take this Bible that you find under your chair home with you. It is our gift to you. Please take it home. And if you would, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. And if you're looking at the Blue Bibles, that's page 599 in the Blue Bibles. Otherwise, we're going to Mark 1, verses 1 through 8 tonight. We're just going to cover the first eight verses and talk about John the Baptist tonight. That is what we are going to do. All right, here we go. So verse 1, 1, we're going to park there for just a second, and here's how it reads. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, the, the Greek term there, actually, if you, if you could read Greek, not that I recommend it, it says, this is the euangelion, this is the gospel, this is the good news. Now, what you need to know about that term is this, if you, believe, if you walk away with nothing tonight, if, if tonight at the end of the service you go, man, that guy preaching is jacked up, I have no idea why he's wearing a Ramon shirt, the place is hot, you know, it looks like a set from Saw 4, the music's too loud, all that kind of stuff, that's fine, God bless you, but we want you to understand this term, the gospel, what it means. Because one of the reasons that Ryan, who will come up here later and he'll be leading worship, and Justin, who you just saw and I, started Revolution four years ago tonight is that we found that most churches, even so-called Bible-believing churches, when we go in there and talk to people, they could not define the gospel. They could not define the, the, the center of the Christian faith. That's a problem, right? That's a serious problem. What we want you to know tonight is what the gospel means more than anything else. So when Mark says good news, this is what he means. I'm going to give you a little background, then we'll talk about it. The background is this. When Mark was written, right, the guy named Mark who wrote this, he was not one of the 12, um, original 12 disciples, by the way. So if you ever get on Jeopardy and you go, who was it? Don't, don't make that mistake and go, Mark, 
eh, wrong. No, that Mark is not one of the twelve disciples. He knew the disciples. He knew of Jesus. He was one of those people who kind of followed around one of the crowds who later became a really committed believer. Church tradition, for whatever that is worth, but this seems to be pretty solid, is that Mark hung around with Peter, who was one of the twelve disciples, and that church tradition tells us that the gospel of Mark is essentially the words of Peter that Mark wrote down. And as we'll see as we work through this, Mark was almost certainly written not for Jews, but for people outside of Israel, non-Jews, who did not know anything about God, did not know anything about Jesus, did not know anything about anything, really. Now we'll talk about why that is as we go through the book. But Mark uses a lot of terms that would have made sense to non-Jews and actually would have offended some Jews themselves. For example, he uses this term good news. Now, the term good news, I'll define how the Bible uses it in a minute. But if you lived in the first century, if you heard euangelion, gospel, good news, you heard king language. That was language, good news, was almost always solely associated with the king. The king in the Roman Empire was Caesar, right? Caesar was the king of the Roman Empire, not just the ape and rise of the planet of the apes, okay? Awesome movie, but Caesar was the king of the Roman Empire. And so every time this term was used in the Roman Empire, when people would say good news, they connected it with the king. They connected it with Caesar. So they would say, it's this king's birthday. It's Caesar's birthday. This is good news. The king is coming to visit our city. This is good news. The king has won a victory over evil. This is good news. This is how they would proclaim it. Right? So if you're living in the Roman Empire, let me, let me set this for you. You have nothing to do. All right? You may think that living in Portsmouth with 500 channels and an Xbox 360 is boring. You know nothing of boring. All right? The Romans who live in a Roman colony made the Amish look like party animals. They had nothing to do. And so, if you went to the city square and you blew a trumpet, that means there's news. Something's happening. And then somebody from Rome is coming to announce news. So you went running to the city square as fast as you could because you have nothing else to do. Nothing. So you go running down there and the first thing they say is, I have good news. I have euangelion. I have gospel. The king is coming. It's the king's birthday. There's a new king. The king has won the victory. And that's how this term became associated in their mind. Right? We have terms we do this today with. When I grew up, 9-11 was a bad way to say the way you call the cops. Now, it's a tragedy that happened September 11th, right? We all think that as soon as we hear 9-11. If you're in the Roman Empire, you hear good news, you think king. King victory. King visit. New king. So when Mark starts off and says, this is the good news about Jesus, he's saying, this is king news. A king is coming. A king is going to win a victory. This was dangerous 
language for Mark. Right? I mean, you walk in the White House today and say, there's going to be a new president. And Obama's like, oh, we'll see about that. You walk into Rome and say, there's going to be a new Caesar. They say, off with his head. Right? This was dangerous language. But there's a reason why he does this. Because he's going to announce, as we're going to see, especially next week, Jesus is pronounced as king. Now, it says this is the beginning of the good news. Why is this the beginning of the good news? What about the Old Testament? Right? We got Genesis to Malachi. We got thousands of years. And beyond that, it's not like Jesus just dropped out of the earth, you know, it just dropped onto the earth as a 33-year-old man, which, by the way, later on, we'll show you a picture of what he probably looked like. I know you grew up with, like, the picture of him with, like, makeup and Bon Jovi hair, right? No first century Jew had Bon Jovi hair and red cheeks, all right? And blue eyes. No one in Israel still has blue eyes. That doesn't happen, all right? He was dark-skinned, dark eyes, had kinky, curly hair. It's not how he looked like, right? But he's been living on the earth for, like, 33 years when he shows up in Mark. So he's like, why is this the beginning of the good news? Here's why. Because as Mark is going to teach his Roman listeners, the people in Israel had been waiting and waiting and waiting for a king. They had felt oppressed by the Roman government and they wanted a king. They couldn't wait for a Messiah. When is he coming? When is he coming? When is he coming? And then he comes. He shows up and it's nothing like what they think it is. And so they say, ah, oh, we don't want you. We want somebody else. We want a real king. Now, the reason that's important for Mark's listeners is this. If you grew up in the Roman Empire, you thought of Jews as people who were born into the faith. And you couldn't become a Jew unless you were born a Jew or unless you went through you know, this ritual and all this other kind of stuff. So why is it all of a sudden saying, hey, the Jewish God wants to open the doors and welcome everybody in. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. And they would say, how can that be? And Mark's going to show them why. Because one of the reasons is the Jews rejected their own king. We'll get to that later. Verse 2. And I'll come back to that gospel. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. Again, this is king language. You cleared the road for a king. When a king would go visit someplace, one of the things you did was to make sure he was safe. Right? Uh, before I became a Christian... And even before I became a lawyer, and I know those two things, there's no way those two things can be true. But I worked in politics, and one of the things I did in the five years I worked in politics is I would often work events where the vice president or the president would show up. And here's what I learned really quickly. If you don't have the right name tag, and you're not on the list, and the Secret Service guards don't know who you are, do not make any sudden moves. They will shoot you. Right? I remember being here in Portsmouth, Ohio. The vice president came. He was getting ready to speak at a rally. 
and somebody brought an elderly man. When I say elderly, I'm not meaning 60s, okay? Elderly like he could have been a veteran of the Civil War. <laughs> this guy could barely move, God bless his heart. And he walked backstage to meet the vice president, but he didn't have a name tag on, and I almost watched two guys in dark glasses draw down on an old man because they will do anything to protect the president or the vice president. When you see this language in Isaiah, it says, clear the way of the Lord. It means the king is coming, make it safe, get everybody out of the way. The king is coming. But it's from the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. Why would non-Jews care about what the prophet in the Old Testament had to say? Again, Mark is going to draw the connections to show that the Old Testament said this would happen. And that the Lord the Old Testament predicted, the king the Old Testament predicted would come, would not be the king of the Jews, but the king of the entire world. He's going to draw that around. That's why. Verse 4. This messenger, this person came in to clear the road for the king, to prepare the road for the king, was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Now that also is a radical statement. Here's why. If you're a first century Jew and you're living in Israel, and you sin in some way that the Old Testament outlines, where do you go to have your sins forgiven? Where do you go? Priest, temple, right? You go to the temple. You go to Solomon's temple. You offer the sacrifice. And a priest in a very nice robe with a very good haircut comes out and accepts your sacrifice and pronounces forgiveness. So why are people going out to some guy out in the middle of nowhere to seek forgiveness? Let's take a look. Because look at this. It's not just some people. It says, verse 5, all of Judea including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. It's not just some people, right? It's not just some people. I, I drive by. Some churches still have Wednesday night service, right? Like five of them. And you'll drive by, and there'll be like four cars in the parking lot. And as a preacher, I always feel sorry for whoever's in there leading things, right? Because he's got like three people in front of him, you know? And it's just awkward no matter how. You try to do that? This is not what's happening with John. This is not like a cult. This is not a few people going out to see this whack job out in the middle of nowhere. Literally, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people are pouring out of the capital city where the temple is to go see this guy. Why? And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. And his clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. And for food, he ate locusts and wild honey. 
Why are they going out to see this guy? In other places, we learn this about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is living out in the wilderness, which means other than baptizing people in the Jordan, which I've been in the Jordan, it smells. I'm just saying, it smells. And here's why. People in Israel knew who the true God was. They did not know about modern sanitation. Okay? So he's baptizing people in a septic tank. It was dirty. It was disgusting. It was gross. John is living out in the desert. Now, get your mind wrapped around this. It's the wilderness. It's the desert. If you've ever been to Israel during the day, it gets very, very hot. It's hot. It smells. There's no soap. There's no deodorant. There's no mouthwash. There's no toothpaste. John the Baptist smelled bad. Right? And he's eating bugs. And thousands of people are going out to be baptized in a septic tank by a guy who smells and eats bugs. This is not the path to success today in the ministry, now is it? Right? Nobody turns on Daystar or TBN and sees a guy, right, in a rough animal fur who doesn't bathe and doesn't shave and doesn't brush his teeth, who is sitting there with bugs sticking out of his mouth while he's preaching (laughs) and baptizing people in a septic tank. Why are they doing this? What is the point? Why would they not just go to the temple where the nice priest is in the nice robe and he bathes and it's a nice place? People don't smell as bad there. Why not go there, right? Now, I'm preaching to different people because you're here. But typically when you pick a church, you pick it based on, these are studies, actual studies. Studies show people will pick a church on, one, what do the bathrooms look like? Have you seen our bathrooms? Right? There are speedway bathrooms that are cleaner and nicer than those bathrooms, right? But typically, you pick a church based on nice bathrooms, nice building, nice people who don't smell, who don't eat bugs, and whose baptistry nobody uses as the toilet. (laughs) Makes sense, right? Why? Are they going out there? Because since they were kids, since they were little kids, they had heard that when the king comes, when everything will change, when God will favor Israel again, will be when a guy shows up looking like Elijah the prophet. And Elijah the prophet lived out in the wilderness and he dressed like this and he looked really weird and he, he and so they're hoping this is it this is the guy 
This is it. This is coming. This is the king is coming. Here's his preparer. Let's go listen to him. That's the only reason you would do. Unless you were desperate, you would not go out to do this, right? And here's what he preached, verse 7. John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to talk more about this baptism, the Holy Spirit, all this kind of stuff as we go through Mark. But, Here's what he's saying. I'm just preparing you. The person is coming is greater than I. I am here to prepare you for the coming of someone else. I am here to prepare you for the coming of the king. That was John the Baptist's job. Now, here's the point of this entire sermon. That's our job as well. Our job is to prepare people for the coming of the king. The Bible teaches that one day Jesus will come back. He will not give any hints that he is coming back. The Bible says, I will come like a thief in the night. Now, I don't live in the best of neighborhoods, but I have yet to encounter a neighbor who lost some copper or who lost some tools or anything like that, who said, the guy phoned me and said, I'll be there in 15 minutes. I'm just going to dash into your garage, grab some copper, I'll be gone, all right? No thief does that, right? Thieves just go and do. And Jesus says, I will return like a thief in the night. No one will know when. There's not going to be another John the Baptist to come and tell you. It's time. I don't care how many pe- people on radio and TV say it's in times. Right? This is it. This is the date. Do you remember that guy on the radio a couple years ago who said the rapture will happen on this date? Remember that guy? Right? If it happened, he didn't make it because he's still on the air. Right? I was on vacation that week. And so because God has not yet sanctified me out of being a smart aleck, what I did was, on the night the rapture, he said the rapture would happen. I snuck down here at Revolution. I put my clothes here on the stage with a note that said goodbye so that when Ryan and Justin walked in the next day, They saw my clothes on the stage with a note saying goodbye. You didn't make it. (laughs) Right? The people who predict these things always fall flat on their face. And they may have the best of intentions. But the reason they fall flat on their face is the Bible says very clearly, nobody is going to know. God is going to show up. And here's the thing we're going to see next week when Jesus comes to be baptized. They don't recognize him then either. There are people literally standing around while God himself walks in their midst and they don't even blink twice. Nothing. Nothing. 
Our job is to prepare people for the coming of the king. That's our job. And you're looking around and you're saying, this place, prepare for the coming of the king? Hey, the first time, it was a dude with bugs sticking out between his teeth, out in the middle of nowhere. This the middle of nowhere. <laughs> right? But the people were desperate. Are they desperate today? I don't think they are. We're going to talk about that. Let's pray, and we'll talk about that when we wrap up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for that you sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. We ask that you will help us to know how it is that we can help prepare the way for your coming, whenever that will be, whether it's in five minutes or 5,000 years. We pray that we will be your servants. Help us to unpack that tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, how do we live this out today? How do you prepare people for the coming of the king? Now, I don't want you to think that that's somebody else's job in a big church in a big city. Typically, change does not come where you would expect it to come. It just doesn't happen that way. Back in the mid-70s, um, I'm, you're going to learn I'm like, I'm a history geek, and I'm a music geek, and I put those two together, so I'm a, I'm a music history geek. And if you would have been living in the mid-70s, most of you weren't. All right, contrary to rumor, I was very small. And in the mid-70s, basically the biggest band in the world was Led Zeppelin, Right? 75, 76, Zeppelin was the biggest band in the world. And if you would have gone to see Zeppelin, and my older brothers did, you would have gone, and it was not uncommon for, say, Jimmy Page, who was the lead guitarist of Led Zeppelin, to go on and have a 15, 20-minute guitar solo. It was not uncommon for John Bonham, one of the greatest drummers of all time, to have a 15, 20-minute drum solo. I mean, you could go see Led Zeppelin, and they could, you could see them for three hours, and they played five songs. Right? And the basic message was, if you can't, if you're not a master of the instrument, you have no business playing music because everybody looked up to like Led Zeppelin. But then something changed. And what led that change was a dingy bar in New York City where literally about 50 people can fit. Have you ever heard of the bar CBGB's? in New York City, okay? Anybody been there? Okay, I've been there too, right? Yeah, it is, it's gone now, it's shut down. Don't go there now. But I've been to CBGB's, and here's, here's what you'll find. When I walked into CBGB's, this legendary club that changed music, I had the same feeling I thought when I walked into the Whiskey in LA, which is where the Doors started, and where, you know, where, where Van Halen started, where Motley Crue started, right? And you walk into the whiskey and you walk into the CBGBs and the first thing you do is you smell the pee and the barf. <laughs> it stunk bad. And then the next thing you think is, I'd better not touch anything unless I want hepatitis A, B, C, and D. <laughs> it's dirty and it smelled. And it's small. Right? This is about the size of the audience you could get in the whiskey. CBGB's, 
half this. And yet, these are the places that changed rock and roll. And in the mid-70s, if you've got a picture that you can throw up there that people can, can see, the band that changed, that became kind of the band at CBGB's was the Ramones. Right? The Ramones in the mid-70s start playing for like 40 people at CBGB's. Now here's what you need to know about the Ramones. They could play three chords, two of them well. <laughs> right? All of their songs were less than three minutes long. I just read on a flight from Phoenix to Columbus, I read Johnny Ramone's um, autobiography, Commando. And Johnny Ramone said that he read that most bands in that day and age who played clubs played 30-minute concerts. He said, we knew we were bad, so therefore we figured we'd play 15-minute concerts. They did. 15-minute concerts. That's what you got if you got, went down to see the Ramones. They would play 15 minutes. But in that 15 minutes, they'd play five or six songs. And they would play them back-to-back. -back. Right? They'd play a song, it would last two and a half minutes, and then they'd go, one, two, three, four, and then they'd play another one. And then another one. And then another one. And then it's like, you're, you're just there, and it's like, good night! Like, that's it? And so all the best bands at the time are playing 20-minute guitar solos. The Ramones played no guitar solos because they couldn't. And yet all of a sudden, this club that that could seat 40 people. There's lines around the block to get in. And even though the Ramones never became big as far as record sales, they became incredibly influential. All of a sudden it became cool to play songs that were three minutes long with three chords. People didn't feel bad about it. They didn't care. It's like, this, this is fine. And it totally changed music. Everything changed out of that. And it all came out of a dirty, nasty club with four ugly guys, and they were ugly. The Ramones were just but ugly. God love them. I love their music, but they were ugly. And they couldn't play. And they changed music forever. Who could have seen that coming? Right? Today, if you go to London, we have a number of artists here. If you go to London, the most sought-after artist is a person no one has actually ever photographed. No one's ever seen him. Not in public. He is totally and utterly anonymous. His name is Banksy. Have we got a picture? There. This is one of his drawings. Now, here's what Banksy does. Banksy believed that art had lost its way. He believed that art had once spoke to the masses, had once spoke in terms anyone could understand and in ways that challenged people. But now, art had been taken into museums and co-opted by people with money and degrees. And he hated that. So what he did was, he decided to take stencils and spray paint and go to government buildings in the middle of the night 
And the next morning, people in London would wake up to find a piece of art for them stenciled on one of their government buildings using pop culture references. He took art out of the museum. He took it back out onto the streets. He said, what do you think? Oh, and I don't want any credit. In fact, you'll never know who I am. And he changed art forever. Today, people in London wake up every morning wondering, is Banksy going to do something today? And because the police take it down within hours, people rush to go see what Banksy has done. His art exists through iPhones, droids, and digital cameras where people quickly snap photos before the police yank it down. And he has changed art forever. And he's done it with a can of Krylon and some stencils. In fact, my favorite book, I have a book next door. It's a book of Banksy's art. It has my favorite quote in it. On the back, the publisher called the police and asked for a quote. The London police said, you will never get us to quote anything for Banksy's book. And that's the quote they used for the back of the book. <laughs> that's awesome, right? It changed everything. And it came out of nowhere. No one saw it coming. If you had gone and asked you know, anybody, the curator of, 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 of any museum in London or Paris or New York or L.A. and said, where is the next great artist? They would have said, see this person? And they're selling this piece for a half a million dollars. And like, but the hottest artist is putting his stuff up for free on the side of buildings in London, England. I didn't see that coming. See, what the Ramones did is they took music and they boiled it down to its basic element. And they basically went right to the people with it. What Banksy did was take the most dangerous aspect of art, the art that challenges people's thinking. To this day, people don't know if Banksy is right, left, center. They have no idea what his politics are. They have no idea because he lampoons everybody just to get a reaction. And he does this because he believes this is the bare essence of art and no one saw it coming. This is where I'm going with this. Do you know, have you ever heard the term revival? Anybody heard the term revival? Right? Which, by the way, we have a crappy air conditioner if you haven't figured that out yet. You come worship with us, you earn it. Um, revival is what has happened in America when like all of a sudden people started storming church doors and said, tell us more about God, tell us more about God. All of a sudden, and it seemed to come out of nowhere. There have been three great revivals in the United States in the 18th century, in the early 19th century, and then in the mid-20th century, largely due to Billy Graham, that last one. And no one saw any of them coming. And they all started in the most unlikely places ever. In a little country church in New England, 
A guy with absolutely no personality whatsoever and way too much brains named Jonathan Edwards started to preach on the book of Romans and started to preach what the gospel is. And all of a sudden, all throughout New England and then all throughout the United States, and then it spread over into Great Britain, and then it spread into Europe, suddenly... It went from nine or eight, eight to nine percent of the people being Christian to fifty percent of the people being Christian. That, and no one saw it coming. The Second Great Awakening. There were guys named Campbell and Stone out in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, which is basically everywhere except Lexington and Louisville in Kentucky, and they were preaching, and all of a sudden hordes and thousands of people and it began to spread everywhere and then this this guy from a hick bible college in florida in the 20th century starts to preach and all these people start to roll in and it spreads everywhere and post-world war ii suddenly it, church attendance goes from 20 percent to 50 percent almost overnight because of this hick named billy graham and all because these people out of nowhere came and said this is the gospel of jesus christ See, the churches had been preaching all kinds of stuff. Here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. Here's how you raise your kids. Here's how you make money. Here's how we need to do about uh, the poor. Here's what we need to do about foreign policy. Here's what we need to do about this. But no one was saying why Jesus died on the cross. And so these guys began to show up and they began to say, this is why Jesus died on the cross. He died on the cross to take your place. He went to the cross to take the punishment for every wrong you have ever done, for any crime, every wrong thought, every hurt feeling, every lie, everything you have ever stolen, every person you've ever cheated on, everything you have ever done that you are ashamed of, everything that you are ashamed anyone would know. He took the punishment for that upon himself. And if you take, if you place your faith in him, you will live forever and never face that punishment because he has done it for you. Boom. It explodes. Because only some people want to learn how to, what to do with their finances. Only some people want to learn how it is to raise kids. Only some people want to learn what it means to be a godly spouse. Only some people want to learn what God thinks about foreign policy. But everybody knows they've done wrong. And everybody knows sooner or later they're going to have to pay for it. And everybody knows they don't deserve eternal life. And the gospel is, you're right, you don't deserve eternal life. You're right. You have done wrong. You're right. You do deserve to be punished. But eternally, Jesus has taken care of that for you. If you place your faith, your trust, your loyalty, your love in him. That is the gospel. That is how you prepare for the coming of a king. The first way you prepare for the coming of the king is you let people know who they really are and what the king has really done to earn his reign. That's how you prepare. And even us in this dingy building in the middle of nowhere, if we just preach the gospel and live out gratitude towards Jesus Christ can actually change the world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your good news. We thank you that you have sent a king not just to judge, but to love, to rescue 
We pray, Heavenly Father, that these people here will know that no matter what they have done, where they have been, what wrongs they have done, what they are ashamed of, whatever they have failed, that they can start over again. They can start afresh by placing their faith in You. We pray that they will do that and then in return they will serve You. They will worship You. They will bring honor and glory to You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.